I think I just had to challenge myself on what success looked like in my life. I kind of had this thing set up in my mind that I had to have this type of car. I had to have this type of house to say that I'm successful and that I quote unquote made it. And I think that was the biggest thing for me was to really sit down and figure out what it is that I value, what's important to me. If I'm really saying that I value my family, why am I working, why am I continuing to work 60 hours a week <laughs> when I don't have to do that anymore? So those are the kind of decisions that I then started to make as I realized that this debt is, is going to be gone. What now? Where do I go with my life after debt? What does that look like for me? And for me, it was really figuring out what success looks like for me, what, what things that I value and why am I doing all of this? So now that the debt is paid off, it's like, well, what now? That was Nicole Hatcher, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 128. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I can't tell you how glad I am that you're listening in today. And I want to take a minute right here at the top of the show to quickly share some appreciation, give out a little thank you. Thank you for listening to this show. I know there's tons of podcasts out there. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's huge. And that's what we do here. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes or less probably to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's just huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. So I really appreciate you taking a second to do that. And thank you, thank you so much for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, and I am so grateful for that. I have a really wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to quickly explain what it is that we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet 10-day six-step life hack plans for anything. (laughs) As a recovering self-help junkie myself, I am totally over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even what brought you here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and tons of others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. It's definitely an adult podcast that covers adult subjects, which means that we do often use adult language. So there's your little language warning. Um, And we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it is. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and always will be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I really do believe that where we spend our money, how we spend our money, that's a real time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. 
So when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, which is super fun, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. It's probably, I mean, I'm, I'm vulnerable on the show for sure, but the weekly emails are where I share a lot of my real life as it's happening. Um, and you'll also be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and other upcoming events in the future. There are three different funding levels that you can see over on Patreon. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. Everything that I just mentioned is at the $8 level. Um, Up at the $25 level, we do live group Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. But again, you can check all that out over on Patreon. So one more time, it's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Nicole Hatcher. Nicole is a money coach, wife, mother of three, and lover of all things personal finance. Her blog and YouTube channel, Frugal Chic Life, is where she documents her journey to financial freedom and, ideally, financial independence. The highlight of her financial journey thus far has been paying off $100,000 of student loan debt in just under six years, and her belief is that there's more to life than working 40 to 50 hours per week, paying bills, buying a bunch of stuff that we don't need, and retiring at age 65. In this episode, Nicole tells her money story, what she learned about money as a child, how and why she first got into debt, the changes that she made to her lifestyle when she decided to prioritize being debt-free, and so much more. She shares stories from her real life about living frugally, how she and her husband handle their finances as a couple, what she's teaching her kids about money, and her approach to building wealth. Money is one of the subjects that I'm most curious about and most desperate for honesty around, and I'm so grateful to Nicole for all of her honesty and openness in this conversation. I hope that you love it as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Nicole, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for inviting me. I know. Look at us, double Nicoles today. (laughs) So drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent the first hour of your day today. Oh, goodness. It's not going to be exciting at all. (laughs) It doesn't have to be. Um, (laughs) Basically, um, I wake up, I try to read a verse or a text from my Bible and pray real quick and then hope to get out of bed before my kids get up. If I can get up before they do, then things kind of get off to a better start. But if they wake up before me, then things are kind of chaotic. So I basically spent the first hour of my day wrangling and wrestling with my three children and getting them out of the house to get to school on time. (laughs) How old are your kids? So I have one. My oldest um, oldest is nine. My next one is seven. And then I have a one-year-old who is almost two. Oh, okay. That's a big age range. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I thought I was done for a while there. And I had myself convinced that I wasn't having any more. And then my husband took about five or six years to talk me into that third one. And thankfully, (laughs) it was a boy. The two older ones are girls. So he finally got the boy. 
<laughs> what was the the final argument after five or six years that made you say, oh okay, goodness. you're correct. Let's do this. <laughs> he just wore me down and literally <laughs> got the other kids involved. Like they're like, we want another baby. We want a brother. And they just kind of wore me down. I'm like, look, let's just go ahead and do this thing. I'm getting too old for this. Let's just do it and get it over with. So here we are. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so funny. I remember um, my friend Lauren, last time she was on the podcast, Lauren Fleshman, she was talking about, um, she was just about to have her second kid at that time. And she said it was the same thing that it was her other child that basically was sort of the deciding mm-hmm. factor that I want a sibling, I want a sibling, you know, that right, type of thing. Right, right. Yeah, it's a big deal to them. <laughs> That's so funny. Did you always know that you wanted to be a mom? Um, Actually, no. Like, in the beginning, before I met my husband, we met kind of young in college. I said I didn't want to have kids. <laughs> and then kind of as we explored and talked and I just grew more as a person, then I made the decision that it was something I wanted to do. But growing up, I was always that kid that was like, no, I don't want to have any kids. So it's interesting now that I have three and the fact that they're, you know, I had that huge gap in between the second and the third one. So, yeah, I waited quite a while. I was uh, 27 when I had my first one. Yeah, I'm always really curious about people's evolution on this because I sort of the the opposite of you. Not that I wanted kids when I was growing up, but I just sort of assumed in that way that like that's what adults do, right? Like mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, well, you just have kids at some point. And it was kind of this like amorphous, I just figured it would happen. And then right around 26, 27, when I got to the age that I thought, oh, okay, this is when people are starting to do this, I realized, oh my gosh, I don't want that at all. And it was so interesting to feel just like mm-hmm. the opposite of that. So I love hearing, I don't know, just like how people's evolutions go with that. Yeah, it's exactly. But it's kind of like some societal pressure that everybody feels like everybody should want to have kids because they have kids. So like initially when my husband and I started out, we were married almost what, almost five years before we had our first one. And people was like, Oh, when are you going to have kids? And when are you going to do this? So it's a lot of pressure. I'm like, well, what if I couldn't have kids? Or, you know, what if I had something physically wrong with me that I couldn't like you would make me feel really bad right now. So, so what's up with all the pressure? Yeah, you know. Yeah, totally. I mean, and it's it's funny too because I feel like sometimes they're like such I don't know, well-meaning questions or people don't even think that through. But I think even just that point that you just made, well, okay, what if it's something that you did really want and wasn't able to happen for mm-hmm. you? And I don't know, it's like maybe think for a second before you start to pressure other people about their like, intimate life choices. Exactly. Like it's, it's such a big decision that it really shouldn't be pressure from anybody to to do that. You have to be in the place where that's something you want for your life because once you go there, you can't go back. So. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You can't, you can't take that back. Um, So given that bigger time gap, what do you feel like is the biggest difference or some of the most noticeable differences for you the third time around versus maybe the first time? Hmm, Well, I have a lot less energy than, than I had the first time around, but it also helps that my oldest is almost 10. So she's able to pitch in a lot compared to when her sister was born, she was two and a half. So, you know, now she's able to make a bottle, you know, if I need to, or go upstairs and hand me some diapers, or, you know, if I need to run into the kitchen and start dinner, she can keep an eye on her brother, and I don't really have to worry about that. So that's kind of nice to have that gap there. She's kind of like a almost a second mother. She thinks that he belongs to her almost. So, so that's nice to have that kind of extra set of hands to help out. Yeah, it's like, well, if you're going to request a sibling, then you better help me. <laughs> exactly. There you go. This is what you asked for. So that's what you <laughs> yeah, get to work. It's funny. <laughs> Pull your weight, kid. I exactly. Love it. Oh, yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> um, so I first found you and your, I think I found your blog before your YouTube was through Farai Harold, who was a guest last season. Um, yeah. And it was one of those things I, I sort of believe like nothing's an accident. I, in, um, 
the Patreon community, the, the, the folks who support the podcast, we've been having some really good conversations lately about money and just sort of the frustration that money is one of those things that touches everybody's lives. And yet we're it's so infrequent that people are willing to be truly honest mm-hmm. about it. And she and I had such a great conversation, you know, about minimalism and that type of stuff. And then I saw that you were on her podcast and, you know, completely fell down the rabbit hole of your work and felt like, oh, here's someone who's willing to be really honest about money. And I got so excited to have this conversation <laughs> with you. So I'm really glad that yeah. we're doing this. Like that's hundred percent correct. You know, so many people, it's such a taboo topic, you know, and I've said this to my audience as well. Like people are willing to talk about the most uncomfortable things, topics that you think should be off limits. Like we were just talking about having kids. People will confront you like, when are you going to have a kid? But if you ask them how much money they make or how much they owe in debt, people get silent on you. So like, what's up with that? <laughs> oh, no, completely. I mean, and it is so it's funny whenever I ask people like, oh, what's the one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? I would say like seven times out of 10, the answer is money. And so the, the conversation that we had in the community was, OK, but more specifically, like, what do you want to know about money? And the questions just like rolled in, like, you know, people mm. saying, I wish people were honest about, you know, what their salary was, like what percentage they were saving, how much they had in debt, you know, what they were doing with the savings, how they handle money within like their partnership if they're not single. And it was just like seeing everyone come forward with the same question made me realize like, huh, this really is a universal thing. Everyone wants to talk about this, you know, and then no one is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's what we're going to do today. (laughs) Sure. Sounds great. Well, let's talk about money. It's my favorite topic. I know, right? I know. I feel like my whole life, I'm like, I want to talk about sex and money and sex and money. (laughs) (laughs) Like taboo? What? No. Right. Um, So... Obviously, it says in your Instagram bio that you paid off $100,000 of debt in five years. That's incredible. Well, thank you. Oh, man. So so I want to discuss that, obviously, but I thought it would be neat to potentially go back a little bit, like back to the beginning. I'm always curious um, sort of what people's origin stories were with money, Um, Mm -hmm. like what what were you taught about money as a child? Sort of like what was your family's financial situation and what mm-hmm. they modeled for you about money and debt? Because I feel like so much of our adult like money stuff or potentially limiting beliefs like it has some kind of an origin in our families. Absolutely. That's a lot of what I talk about on the YouTube channel as well as on the blog. Like people just think, oh, I'm just bad with money and that just came out of nowhere. But it came from somewhere. And most often it came from our experiences growing up. So for me, I guess I was kind of shaped by the fact that my parents were teenage parents. You know, my mother was 16 when she got pregnant with me and my father was uh, 17. He turned 18 right after I was born. So they were just figuring out how to really be adults for themselves. And at that point, trying to finish up high school. So they were in a situation where, you know, they did stay together and eventually finished school and everything got married, moved out on their own, but again, still trying to figure out how to be an adult, how to raise this child and how to make it all work. So that really shaped, you know, my experience growing up as a, as a child and into my teen years. And so they struggled a bit, you know, neither one of them went to college. So obviously that has a a big impact on your ability to earn income. The fact that you, you know, didn't go to college, didn't earn a degree. So One thing I would say is that we always had everything that we needed. You know, we always had food on the table, but there were some tough times. So that definitely shaped me moving forward. And I do a lot of work on myself to try to figure out where, you know, why am I the way that I am with money today? And all of it goes back to what I experienced, you know, way back then. But one big message that I learned from my parents, although they were never intentional about saying, sitting us down and saying, this is what you do with money. I never saw them reach for a credit card or use debt to try to finance a lifestyle that they couldn't afford. If we didn't have money for things, then we just didn't buy it. You know, we used layaway or we saved up for things, but 
They never, you know, pulled out the credit card and said, hey, we're going on vacation. So it might have limited some of the experiences that we had, but we never got into the mindset of living beyond our means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a powerful distinction. You know, there can be a difference between what we're told versus what we actually see happening, right? That maybe they didn't sit down and talk to you about it. But I mean, kids pick up so much just from what's modeled to them. Exactly. And like I always say, my mother was the original side hustler because she always had something going on. And, you know, later on, her and my parents, I mean, her and my my dad divorced. And so for the next half of my life, she was a single parent. And my mother was literally out there delivering pizzas, okay, in the evening to make sure, you know, in addition to working her full-time day job to make sure that me and my sister, you know, had things. So just watching her do that and being strong and saying, if she can do that, like, I know I can do this. But also at the same time, I realized very early on, I said, um, like I said earlier, I didn't uh, didn't necessarily want to have kids starting out because I thought, you know, I don't want to have to struggle like this and I don't want to have to worry about being responsible for somebody else and, you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, I just realized early on that I needed to do something different. I did not want to be that person that, you know, was a teenage mother and become a statistic and, you know, be the stereotypical thing of what probably a lot of people thought I would fall into, you know, and just repeat that cycle. And so I decided to go a different route and, you know, pursue my education and do other things that I thought would help to set me up for a better lifestyle. So do you feel like financially that 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 was really clear for you? Like, I want more money than I grew up with? Was that like a thought that you had when you were, I don't know, maybe like in your late teen years? Absolutely. You know, for me, I grew up in uh, Baltimore City, uh, on the northeast side of Baltimore City, and it's not exactly the the best place to grow up. You know, it definitely shapes me and who I am today, but it's not something that I ever wanted my children to experience. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the HBO series The Wire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, it's one of my favorite shows. But essentially, that's that's what I grew up in. You know, walking past people nodding out on the street. You know, hooked on drugs. Walking past you know crack vials and things like that. And not to say that any of that went on in my household, but that is what you saw in the neighborhood. My mother was always super protective of us. But, you know, that's what you saw. And it's like, no, I want something more. I want to get out of Baltimore. I want to do something different with my life. And if I do have children, I don't want them to experience some of these things that I experienced growing up. You know, Mm -hmm. literally tough times where you walk past or you come home from school and, you know, you see gang activity. You see um, shootings happen at, you know on the school grounds and things like that. So it's like, no, I kind of want to do something a little different. But it was interesting because I didn't really see a ton of a ton of that modeled within my family. My grandfather was a college graduate and did, you know, go back to school um, and finish his college degree later on once he he and my grandmother were together and had they had three kids. He finished college as a as as an adult and as a um, as a working adult and a father and things like that. So I did see that, but everybody kind of stayed in Baltimore. Nobody ever ventured out. Nobody ever really did anything different. Everybody kind of stayed within like this, you know, few block or few mile radius. My parents literally grew up like um, three blocks from each other. And we didn't really venture outside of that little small area. Yeah. So then I'm curious, what was it that made you think, okay, I'm going to be the one that does things differently? I, uh, originally, I didn't know that I would be able to, but it was just something, some desire in me that said, I want something different. And what really, um, I think, solidified it for me was once I did finish up high school, I got kind of like towards my 
third year, I was always a pretty good student, but I kind of fell off maybe freshman year, sophomore year, just kind of got caught up and not going to that the best school that I could go to. I was kind of bored. It didn't challenge me. So I got kind of caught up in skipping school a little bit. And then when I got to my third year, my junior year, I was like, man, this thing is wrapping up here. I need to get it together. If I really want to do something different and want to go to college, I need to get my stuff together. So I started getting it together and just realizing that my education was going to be a way for me to change my circumstance. So that's what I I decided to pursue. Mm -hmm. And then what was your educational path from there? So I always knew I wanted to do something in healthcare. And for me, it was like a very uh, intentional decision. I was like, boom, healthcare is where it's at. That's going to be like a career where I can have some stability and I can earn a lot of money. So I'm going to do something in healthcare. So if you look in my high school yearbook, it says I was going to be a pharmacist. That was the career that I decided on at that time. But I went and I thought about nursing for a while. I actually was originally pre-med biology. And then I decided to go to school to be a physician assistant. So I'm a certified uh, physician assistant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's interesting to hear your thought process too of, okay, what's going to be the career path that's going to have, you know, explosive job opportunities and that there's going to be stability. It sounds like it was a really, like you said, intentional decision for you. Yes. Um, I went to the library, did the research, looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, like, you know, the list of careers that are going to be booming in 10 and 15 years, 10, 20 years down the line. And I'm doing this as like a 17, 18 year old girl, like, I need to see where I'm going to be making some money and where they're going to be career opportunities. So I was very intentional about doing that so that I could make some good money and be successful in the way that I thought success was at that point in time. Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, I feel like that's so often not even the questions that were asked. It's like, what are you interested in? Not that that's not valid also, right? It's not like pursue something Mm -hmm. that you hate only because there's jobs there. But I don't Mm -hmm. know, it just sounds like when you're saying it, it sounds just so practical and smart. (laughs) I've always been that very practical person, I think from early on. And I think that's, you know, it's shaped who I am today. But there does have to be a balance because, you know, now that I'm older, looking back, it's like, okay, maybe I went into this healthcare thing, I did the right thing, I earned a good salary, but am I really passionate about this? So the questions are a little bit different for me at as a woman approaching 40 in a few years, you know, the questions are a little bit different. What can I do that I'm passionate about, but I can also earn money at? And Healthcare may not be, it's definitely not what I want to be doing in 20 years, you know, for my career. So it's a balance between the two. But I do think as somebody coming out of school, that's a question you got to ask yourself. I might be passionate about art, but what can I do to monetize this and really make an impact financially is more than just what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, that's one of my problems with this sort of like, follow your heart, like follow your passion, your bliss, whatever sort of advice like that. I mean, that's fine, I guess. Like, yeah, it's good to have hobbies and things you're interested in, but that doesn't necessarily pay like put food on the table. So that's like not always the best advice. Absolutely. Like you want to be able to feed your family. I can't feed my family on a hope and a dream, you know, passion. I always say passion, don't pay no bills. Like (laughs) you need a little bit more than passion. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's one of those things that like, it's not necessarily like a completely either or it's not saying, okay, do something soul sucking that you absolutely hate and have no joy and passion. But I mean, and you mentioned sort of side hustling and and stuff, which we're obviously going to go into that it's possible to make the puzzle work differently. Like maybe there's one thing that you do and that's what you do for money and you do something else on the side until maybe that can earn more money. Or I don't know, I've done so many iterations of that in the past and worked jobs that I certainly wasn't super passionate about, but I mean, you have to make money. So Mm -hmm. absolutely. 
So then where did the debt come into play for you? I, I know it's mostly student loans, right? Is that when you say yes. you paid off $100,000 in debt? So can you kind of tell your debt story of basically how you went from, hey, my parents never, you know, put anything on a credit card, $0 in debt to, you know, six figures in debt? Yeah, certainly. So it was kind of a thing where, as I said, I didn't really have anybody modeling this whole college thing as far as what I should do and how to pay for it and all that kind of thing. But the good thing is that when I started out going to school, because I came from a lower income background, I was able to go to school for free initially. So I went to a local school in um, Baltimore and I was able to get grants and all kinds of things. I was actually getting money back that I did not have to pay back and a refund check. And it worked out, but I was at that time pre-med biology. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to medical school. That was my version of success. That's what I'm going to do. And again, somewhere around my like sophomore, junior year in, in college now, I was like, hmm, what if I don't pass the MCAT? What if I don't do well? What if I don't get into medical school? What am I going to do with a bachelor's degree in biology? I'm going to be stuck in Baltimore and be stuck living at home. And so I panicked. <laughs> so I started looking at some backup plans and figuring out what I can do from here. And I went again back to this research and I stumbled across this profession. And back then it was it was still a relatively new profession, um, physician assistant. And I was like, oh, you know, somebody I worked with, I was working in retail at the mall. And at the time, her older sister was in PA school. And I was like, oh, what's a PA? And I started looking into it and I realized I could still work in healthcare, but I could maybe get out of school a lot faster, still make good money and, um, you know, be able to jumpstart my career that way. And so I kind of put medical school in the back burner and I looked into PA schools. Problem was at the time, there was only one school that was sort of close to me. And um, I would have to transfer schools because my college did not offer it. So that's where the student loan debt came in. So much to my parents, um, you know, they were not happy about my decision. I decided to transfer schools in my junior year when I was a year away from finishing a biology degree and transfer to another university where they offered, you know, PA degree. And so that is where the student loans came in because I had to give up all of my grant money and go to this school and take out student loans for the first time in my life. So the first part of that was probably about $30,000 from finishing up PA school, graduating with my degree, then getting a master's degree and then I got a doctorate in health sciences and that was another 50k. Mm -hmm. So combined by the time I finished that third degree, we're talking just under just under one hundred thousand dollars. My husband had about ten thousand dollars from his undergrad. And then we had a couple of car loans, too, which I don't even include in that. So it was actually over one hundred thousand dollars that we paid off in just under six years. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the emotional side of the debt because I feel like so much of the conversation around debt is like, good debt versus bad debt, right? Like I think it's easy to say, well, education is an investment, right? And this is like mm -hmm. a, a good debt to take out. Or I don't know, there's like a lot of sort of stories around student loan debt versus, you know, consumer debt or whatever. But I'm, I'm curious how it felt to you to owe that kind of money. Well, initially, I honestly didn't think much about it. I was just like, I think I had that same mindset that student loan debt is good. I'm going to make the money back. I'll pay it back someday, some nebulous date down the line that I didn't really focus on. And again, I was just so driven. I wanted to achieve this certain thing. I was always the type of girl that had a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. And I decided when I was an undergrad that I was going to get this doctorate and I wanted to be done with it by the time I was 30. 
why I came up with that number, I don't know. But I said, I want to be done with it by the time I'm 30. And I kept plugging away towards that, not even thinking about how I'm going to pay this money back. And I now adopted or a few years later adopted the mindset that there's no such thing as good, good versus bad debt. There are, there's certainly a hierarchy of debt. You know, there's certainly soul sucking types of debt that you can get into payday loans and things like that. So compared to something like that, student loan debt might be perceived as good, but debt is just debt. So I think I just had to get the mindset that I have to pay, pay the piper. I got uh, two months away from graduation. I was pregnant with my second child um, as I approached finishing up that third degree. And I said, I really need to tally this, this money up and figure out how much I owe. And when I saw the number on paper, it was just like something clicked and it's, it's time to get rid of this debt. And that was my new focus was to pay off this debt as soon as I possibly could. Yeah, I think the student loan thing, I mean, obviously this could be a much larger conversation, but just like even from my own experience, I graduated and just, I only went through undergrad and I had just over $50,000 of debt when I graduated that like, I wish that when I was 18, someone would have been like, Hey, maybe think about this a little bit more. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know like it was just such an accepted, like, that's just what you do. Sort of the, the culture that I grew up in and the school that I was in is you go to the best school that you get accepted to. And it's totally worth, you know, signing on that dotted line to take, like, just felt like fake money. It was like not even real in my mind at that age. Right. And it's, I remember, I mean, when I paid off that debt, it was like the best day of my life. And even though it was, you know, quote, good debt, I agree with you. I started to feel the same way of like, yeah, you know, maybe this is an investment. And also it makes me feel awful. Like I had a really emotionally hard time being in debt. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like it takes a real emotional toll on you, that weight of knowing that you have to repay this money. And yes, as a 17, 18 year old person, nobody really advises you and you're really not equipped to make these long-term decisions that are going to impact you for years to come. And, you know, unfortunately, I really didn't have that structure to say, this is what you should do, or this is what, what, um, what you should look forward to have a plan to pay this money back. And, um, for me, when I made that pivot to change my major, that's really what, um, you know, what did me in, but I don't regret the decision because I was able to pay back the money and I made the decision based on being able to get a better return, quote unquote, on my investment in terms of making sure that I could get in a career where I'd be making, bringing down some good money and versus possibly finishing that biology degree, not getting into medical school and making $25,000, $30,000 as a high school biology teacher. Not that that's anything wrong with that, but for me at the time, that's just not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to make a good, uh, above average income for my family to be able to change my circumstances. Mm-hmm. So when you, like you said that you sat down and you kind of actually looked at the real total number and actually you know saw it on paper, do you feel like that was the turning point where you were like, okay, enough's enough. Like it's time to do something about this. Yeah. Because in the, in the meantime, you know, I was doing the average, the average American thing. Not only did I have these student loans now, I was pregnant, literally getting ready to walk across the stage six months pregnant with my second child, we had bought a house, we had two car notes and we had all these other things in addition to the student loan debt. And I was like, man, I really need to get it together and figure out how I'm going to pay this money back. And so, as I said, I don't regret the decision to take out the debt because it really helped me to, or take out the student loans because it really helped me to get where I am now professionally. But I just wish I had been a little more intentional with taking out that debt and figuring out how I was going to pay it back 
I just kind of buried my head in the sand and said, I'm focusing on this goal. And regardless of what I have to do to get there, I'm going to get to this goal of finishing this, you know, doctorate by the time I'm 30, not mm-hmm. figuring how I'm, how I'm going to pay this money back. Were you and your husband on the same page about, yep, going to take out these loans? You know what? We didn't really have a whole bunch of conversation about it. <laughs> we just kind of, I just kind of told him this is what I wanted to do. And that's what I went ahead and, and did. We didn't have a, you know, any big conversations about it. He went to and got a master's degree as well, but thankfully his was free. He was able to get his graduate education for free and actually have a little bit of a stipend. And I was the only one working at the time. We were living off of one income and I was continuing to pursue my degrees while I worked. So I really didn't have an opportunity to do the graduate stipend thing and get a whole scholarship to go and finish my graduate education. I kind of had to do it, do some of it online while I continued to work and things like that. But yeah, it's interesting. We, I took out all those student loans and we didn't have any kind of big sit down moment to really figure out, hey, how's this going to really affect us in 10 years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, that's something that we'll definitely get into more. I'm always interested in how people handle their finances, like with their partner, with their family. But so then when you did decide, okay, like, I'm going to make paying this debt off a priority, was there mm-hmm. a bigger conversation that happened then? Yeah, um, I think I just kind of started making minor small changes at first. And he kind of noticed that I was changing things up a bit. So I started to, for example, take a closer look at how much we were spending in food. And that's a kind of low hanging fruit way to figure out how I can immediately save some money. I knew I could control our grocery budget. So I started to do like a retroactive look at how much we spent on food the the last month. I looked at some statements and we had a small family at the time. It was just he and I were kind of small people, small adults, and we had two toddlers and we were spending like seven, $800 in groceries and then spending another $200 eating out every month. Like, mm-hmm. how, are we, how are we spending $1,000 on a family of four? And all of us are like little people. Where's all this money going? And so I started making those kinds of small adjustments. And he started taking notice. And I was like, okay, we're going to start looking at this budgeting thing and figuring it out. And so he just kind of saw me making changes. But I didn't really have a big com- conversation either on that to say, hey, this is what I'm doing. But Mm -hmm. gradually he started to take note and I started to pick up some side hustles. So it was important for him to be on board because I was working a night job and he was going to have to take the lead with the girls who were at the time toddlers. So, yeah. So, okay. So you mentioned the low hanging fruit of the grocery budget. I'm really curious about sort of getting into the details of like what you did to pay off that debt. Once you decided that mm-hmm. that was going to be a priority, what were the changes that you made? Whether it was, like you said, getting, you know, a side hustle, a second job, you know, changing that, like the, can you share some mm-hmm. of the details of the steps that you went through? Sure. So looking at the food budget, that was a big thing. Being intentional about my spending. So I started kind of just looking at where is my money going? And what I realized for me was I had this mindset that if, I wasn't taking on a bunch of consumer debt that it was okay for me to just shop because I wanted to, you know, I would maybe spend $400 on shoes, but it's not like I carried over a balance on my credit card. So I was like, Hey, this is my money. I work hard. I'm going to spend it. So I had an, I deserve it kind of mentality when it came to my money and I worked hard. So I felt like I'm going to play hard a little bit too. And so I realized like, man, I just spent $500 on clothes and shoes just for myself. And if I add in the kids, you know, that's easily over a thousand dollars or what I might drop within a couple of months on clothes and shoes. I could have taken out a thousand dollars and put it on my student loan debt. Mm-hmm. 
So I went on a year long like shopping ban, self-imposed. And I said, I'm not going to buy any shoes. I'm not buying another pair of shoes. I'm not buying anything else to wear. I have a closet full of stuff that I barely reach for. How about I just focus on what I have already and then take every extra dollar that I have coming in and put it on a student loan debt. And I was earning an above average salary. So that helps. And then the fact that I finished that third degree, I was able to double my income and take on some additional side hustles. But it was important for me to not elevate my lifestyle to keep living in my townhouse that was 1800 square feet and not now go out and buy a McMansion or whatever because I could quote unquote afford it, but to keep driving my same car and take every extra dollar that I had coming in from these side hustles and put it towards the student loan debt. So that was kind of the big thing for me. So it's one thing to budget and to cut expenses, but at some point you're going to hit a window where you can't cut anything else. And then you have to look at increase in your income. So I did both increase my income as well as keep a close eye on my expenditures. So I was able to earn more and spend less at the same time and grow the gap in between and pay the debt down. And now my focus is more on building wealth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So can you talk about um, like specifically the jobs that you were working at the time? Sure. So I worked full time as a certified physician assistant And I did that. That was my day job. And at some point, shortly after I finished my that third degree, and it was right after I had the second baby, once I gave birth, then I started working nights. So one thing about working nights is that it's not as busy. I worked in an inpatient setting. So patients are kind of, you know, trying to sleep or whatever. So it was kind of like just putting out fires or handling many emergencies or if I got a call from the emergency room. And so I had more downtime. So what I did was I started putting in applications to teach online. Since I had this doctorate degree, I figured that was my segue into getting into higher education. So I started looking at online positions. This was around, let's say it was about 2010. So we were still coming off of that economic downturn. And when people are out of work, they go back to school. So there were a ton of opportunities to teach online. So I started teaching classes online. And I was able to grade papers during my downtime at work. And um, I picked up um, a class in the afternoon where I taught at the community college. So I was short on sleep. I would get off of work sometimes 3 a.m., come home, sleep for a few hours, help my husband get the girls off to daycare, um, maybe go back to sleep for a couple hours, get up, teach a class on Tuesdays and Thursdays at noon, maybe go back home, change my clothes, get into my scrubs, and then go back to work at 3 p.m. So it was a real hustle and grind season for me. And I sacrificed myself a little bit during those years. I didn't sleep a lot. I didn't eat very well. I didn't work out. But it was towards the purpose of being serious about getting rid of the debt. So that's sort of my side hustle story, I would say. Yeah, I love the honesty in this too, because I feel like there's so much talk about like life balance and self care. And obviously, those things are important. And yet, it's like, we can't have all the things at the same time. Like, to your point, there are sacrifices, if something is going to be your number one priority, everything can't be a priority. Like, that's not what the word priority means, right? Like, everything can't be a priority at the same time. Absolutely. Like, there's a, a time and a season for that. And I've come to realize that another thing that I also have realized about myself during those years and in the years thereafter is that I'm sort of a workaholic. So it's like naturally my default to be doing a lot and take on a lot of jobs and 
even though now money is not as tight as it used to be, I sometimes still feel that pull to earn more and have more and, you know, to do more with the money that I have. And, um, you know, I think that goes back to that childhood situation where I wasn't like deprived per se, but, you know, we didn't go on big vacations or things like that. So I kind of sometimes get into the mode where I feel like I need to earn more, even though we already have everything we've ever needed and more than I ever had as a child. But it's kind of this thing where, you know, I still need to constantly earn. So I'm always checking myself on that and realizing that there has to be balance in that and, um, and being able to earn more, but also enjoy life today, like for what it is now, not mm-hmm. to always be striving for the next goal, but to be able to sit back and say, like, if I want a day off, then I'm taking a day off. And, you know, just because I have the ability to earn more money, that doesn't mean that that is what my priority is right now. Yeah, it's like at some point you have to decide what enough looks like for you. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. I think it's interesting to hear you talk about because essentially it's like like when you're focusing on repaying this debt, that it seems like it's two things. It's like on one hand, it's the actual tangible steps, the going on a shopping ban, you know, the cutting the grocery bill, the taking on side hustles, like the things that you do. But I think another part that's often overlooked is sort of the emotional piece. Like you said something that um, uh, stuck out for me that, you know, you thought, well, as long as I'm not going into consumer debt, I work hard, I deserve this, right? There's sort of like the emotional piece of like when you make a switch maybe into budgeting or focusing more on saving money. And I I hear this from, from other people on I've certainly felt this way too, of like wanting to do it in a way that doesn't feel like you're depriving yourself. I don't know. I think there's like an interesting psychological thing there of, okay, I'm going to make these changes because it's my priority, but sort of having to then grapple with like, I don't know what your beliefs are around that. Or if you've told yourself like, Hey, I deserve this. And then to take that away, like, what was that like for you? Well, it was a, it was kind of a cold Turkey decision. I didn't ease into it at all. I was just like one day, I I don't need to shop anymore. I'm not going to shop. And for anybody that knows me, that was pretty big for me. And I think that's when my husband kind of realized that I was serious about this whole thing was that I just stopped shopping. I went a whole year, over a year, I didn't buy one single pair of shoes. I decided to wear everything that I had, get creative and match up things, different combinations in my closet that I never tried before. And what I realized was that I already had more than enough and I don't wear 70% of the stuff that's in my closet now. So then I started kind of downsizing and getting rid of stuff. But, you know, it was just a whole mindset shift because just because I have the money and I can buy these things, is that something that I really need? Do I really need this stuff? And does that now mean that I need a bigger house and a bigger closet because I have all of these different things? So I just kind of made up in my mind that I don't deserve these these things, like these are just things. It's just stuff. And what I really deserve is to have more peace in my household, more financial peace. And if that means that I'm giving up shoes and clothes and taking this money and increasing my savings rate and paying off debt and investing more, then I think that that's something that I value more than just clothes and shoes. Mm-hmm. So it's it was a it was a a spectrum and it was a a progression. It didn't all happen overnight, and it's still a journey that I'm on now. Yeah. So while you were going through this process, I'd be interested to hear if um, you sort of had to, I mean, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but if you had to come, uh, you know, face to face with any limiting beliefs about money, like what came up for you that you maybe had to work through more on like a belief side as you have been like making these changes? Mm. Mm, That's a good question. I think I just had to challenge myself on what success looked like in my life. I kind of had this 
things set up in my mind that I have to have this type of car. I have to have this type of house to say that I'm successful and that I quote unquote made it. And I think that was the biggest thing for me was to really sit down and figure out what it is that I value. What's important to me. If I'm really saying that I value my family, why am I working? Why am I continuing to work 60 hours a week (laughs) when I don't have to do that anymore? So those are the kind of decisions that I then started to make as I realized that this debt is, is going to be gone what now, where do I go with my life after debt? What does that look like for me? And for me, it was really figuring out what success looks like for me, what what things that I value, and why am I doing all of this? So now that the debt is paid off, it's like, well, what now? And that's sort of the position where I find myself in now, trying to not necessarily achieve work-life balance because I don't really feel like that's a real thing, but just trying to figure out what do I prioritize in my life and how do I reflect my values in my everyday living? What does that look like for me? Mm-hmm. I mean, that the, a question that you posted on Instagram recently of what does your dream life look like? Do you feel like you have an answer to that? Um, I think I think I'm still on a quest to figure that out, but I think I have more clarity now than I did as a 30 year old or as a 20 year old. And you know, for me, it's really about just having more time. That is my most valuable resource and asset at this point. And that's something that money can't buy me back. So now that the debt is paid off, I need to try to figure out a way to sort of buy back, buy back some of the freedom, you know, that I, that I can experience and be able to use my time in a way that really reflects my value. So it's, it's an ongoing process. I'm always checking myself and asking myself is what I'm doing with my time aligning with my values is the way that I'm spending my money aligned with my goals and my values as well. And that then reflects in how I spend my money and how I spend my time. Yeah. I think this is another place where it's easy for people to get tripped up because it sounds so good and it makes so much sense to be like, figure out what your values are and then just like align everything with it. Like that sounds awesome. Sign me up for that. Right. And like, yet (laughs) I have also found at some point that I have that sort of deer in headlights thing of, wait, what actually are my values? And obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a process and stuff to work through, but so can you get a little bit more specific? Like, and obviously you're still working through it and this stuff evolves over Mm -hmm. time, but what has become clear to you of this is a specific value and this is what it looks like. Cause even I think it's one thing to say, Oh, you know, I really value my family. Okay. But then what does that look like in sort of day to day practice? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, it really, I mean, there's literally an exercise that I walk people through. I did this 21 day money challenge where I took people, people through a, a exercise or a lesson each day to say, um, maybe accelerate their journey on this whole financial freedom thing as well. And there's literally, I mean, there are tons of different things that you can value, but I literally have a worksheet where people can sit down and, you know, say, I value my family or I value free time. I value recreation and um, walk through that and see what your true values really are. And for me, if I say I value my family, then that means that I'm not um, depriving myself of sleep, you know, (laughs) sacrificing myself and then being um, cranky and you know, anxious around the house and making my kids um, cranky because I'm I'm short on sleep and short on time. But being able to scale back my schedule and spend my time in a way that I enjoy and not feel like I have to constantly chase money, um, which is something that I, as I said, I struggle with. But just being able to live my life in a way that I enjoy and that I can really sit back when I get to the end of my life and say. I really did something that made a difference. I was there for my children. I have good relationships. 
um, and um, just be able to be proud of how I live my life. Mm-hmm. I have a really clear really strong memory of when I made my final student loan payment. And the way that I went about it was probably not the, I don't know, smartest way I had built up an emergency fund, you know, followed sort of that advice. And it got to the point where once the student loan balance was at a level that I felt like, okay, this is, it's not that much left. If I like empty out this savings account, then I can pay this off. And that was the decision that I made. I just needed to be done with the debt so badly. But I remember I was visiting my parents. They lived in Arizona at the time and I was sitting on my mom's bed and it was the day before Christmas. And I like clicked the button and made that like, it's a very clear memory for me mm-hmm. of paying off the debt. Do you have that? Is that strong for you? Your memory? Yeah, it's, absolutely. So I guess it was the summer of, um, what summer was that? I guess that would be 2016. And it was really interesting because it was anticlimactic, actually, because I've been working on this for so long. And then that summer, I also gave birth to my son and my son was born prematurely, like extremely premature. I went and um, had to go into the hospital with complications and had to have an emergency C-section at 25 weeks. So my son was born weighing one pound, 8.3 ounces. And I was literally just like weeks away from paying the student loan debt. And I'm thinking, yes, this is the big thing. And, you know, in the midst of all that, like my world is falling down around (laughs) around me. And when I finally did hit that um, submit button on that student loan payment, my son was still in the NICU. He spent literally 100 days in the NICU over three months. And it was just like a thing that I did. And I kept it moving. I did do a video to document it on my channel, but I was just like in no frame of mind. It's when I look back on it, I'm like, I can't believe I literally continued to make videos during that time. But part of it I did just to kind of distract me from all the craziness that was going on. Like my son is in the hospital. I had to leave the hospital without my child. And um, I was going through a lot emotionally at the time. So it really it was like a um, a big moment for me, but it was anticlimactic because I had so much going on and just like my actual real life that I wasn't really focused on. It was just something I did. I clicked the button and I just moved on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that totally makes sense. I actually, one of the things that I felt that maybe I should have expected, but didn't once I paid off the debt, because like you, I had had that, you know, goal for a while, it had been years and years. And that was sort of my big financial goal. And everything was oriented to that. And then once mm-hmm. it was paid off, I kind of felt like, uh, now what, right? Like, I, I didn't really know <laughs> what to do. So um, do you kind of did you experience that? And then how long did it take to pick another financial goal? Do you have, you know, one overarching financial goal right now? Um, so I, I continue to, I've always had financial goals, even beyond paying off debt. Even while I paid off debt, I continue to save and do all those other things. But I would say the biggest overarching goal for me right now is achieving financial independence. So actually being able to get to the point where I have enough money in the bank and enough money in assets that I don't have to work every day to pay the bills. So that is like my, my super big goal at this point is to achieve financial independence and not necessarily retire early in a traditional sense, but to be to the point where I can pursue more things that I want to do for, for fun and create, excuse me, create passive streams of income so that I'm not having to trade time for money all the time. So that is my big, big goal is to get to that point. And hopefully I can do it by age 45. Mm -hmm. I love that goal. How did you decide what the total amount that you had to have in savings and assets was? Like, what was that Mm -hmm. process like for you? So there are kind of loose rules of thumb. But if you look at 
just getting like a back of the envelope type of number to figure out how much you need to retire. It's really like 25 times your current expenditures each year annually. Um, so if you spend, let's say $40,000 each year, you would multiply that by 25 and you can get a rough number of what you'll need to retire on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just based on the numbers that I came up with, my, my goal right now is 1.2 million in assets, um, to have that by the time I'm 45. And currently as we're recording, I am, how old am I? I'm 37. <laughs> okay. All right. I like it. I like the tangible numbers. This is so good. So, well, and that's obviously, you know, sort of your whole thing of, you know, ditching debt, living frugally, building wealth. So obviously we talked about ditching debt. We talked a little bit about um, living frugally, but before we get into building wealth, I'd like to dip into that a little bit. So like w when you got through the process of paying off the debt and obviously having made some lifestyle changes for you, when you think of the word frugal, because I think that can have lots of different connotations. What does it look like in your life to live frugally? Hmm. That's, that's a great question. I think sometimes people misconstrue being frugal for being cheap, like the two are somehow synonymous, but I think they're completely different. Um, frugal, I think, means just to be virtuous, just to be um, to be uh, thrifty, to use your money in a way that is smart, to just make little smart decisions that'll help your money to, to stretch a little bit further, but doesn't necessarily mean that you're cheap. So for me, being frugal means to take a look at what I already have, to make conscious decisions, to use up the items that I have, to wear the clothes in my closet, to wear the shoes that I own before I think about going out to get a new pair just just because. So those are like kind of the everyday decisions that I make. I'm just like, I already have enough stuff. You know, I spent years accumulating a bunch of stuff and now I'm just using the things that I already have. It means just um, making smart decisions about how I spend my money and making sure that um, living a life that I can be proud of, that I'm not measuring my my worth or my success by what other people deem as something that's successful. And um, that's kind of how I look at things before I make a purchasing decision. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things I'm doing right now, I've been I, my goal was to save um, cash to buy a car. I've never been able to pay outright for a car before. I've always had to do some kind of financing. And that was another kind of short-term goal that I had to set aside. And right now I'm driving a 14-year-old car <laughs> that is, that's been long been paid off. I have enough money saved up to where I can actually go out and buy a brand new car if I wanted to. But is that something that I need to do? Like, what do I need a brand new car for, even a new used car right now? When the car that I have is perfectly fine, gets me from point A to point B, it works great. That's money that I could be investing or using in some other way. In the meantime, instead of just going out because I want to get a new car. So making those kind of hard decisions that not everybody is willing to make to just say, um, let's look at this thing a little bit smarter. How can I make my money work in a better way for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, for me, it's also been, and this is going to probably sound really obvious, but I definitely grew up in a very consumerist money spending household. It was like, oh, you like need something done. You just exchange money for it as opposed to doing it yourself or building the skills or, you know, if it's broken, you just buy another one instead of fixing it. And I think that that's true for a lot of people. And so it's been even, you know, like when you said sort of like shopping your own closet, stuff like that. Also, it like, can I repair this? Is this a thing that I can borrow as opposed to, you know, I feel like there's some weird feelings sometimes around 
asking people to borrow stuff, <laughs> you know, that it's like, hey, if you have this thing, why do I need to buy it and only use it twice a year instead of, you know, um, I don't know, borrowing, repairing that type of stuff. And it, as I'm saying that, I feel like almost kind of embarrassed because, well, yeah, of course, those are things <laughs> that we should be doing. But mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't raised that way. And that's definitely been in the last couple of years, an adult sort of pivot into thinking just that way about those couple of things. Yeah, like it's it's super important because we live in such a consumer driven society where it's like, oh, you could just go buy this or even if you don't have the money, you can just go finance it and get a, a new shiny one. And part of what I like to do is I'm I'm probably a big nerd about this, but I like to look at the strategies that marketers actually use to kind of trick us into making the decisions that we make about money. And they're very strategic about separating us as the consumer from the dollars that we have in our pockets. So I like to be equally as strategic in figuring out how I can hold on to my dollars so that I'm not falling for these things. Like I was reading this book recently and I heard about this term called um, planned obsolescence that the car manufacturers use. So every couple of years, they make these um, small changes to the to the physical body of the car. They do this new upgrade or this new uh, fender on the front or something new to make you think, oh, it's new and shiny. And now I need to upgrade my car and get a new one. And it's like the three-year-old model works perfectly fine and it may actually be a better better car than the newer version. But they they do these things to make us feel feel as if we need something new and shiny all the time. And so I'm constantly trying to retrain myself not to fall for these traps and these pitfalls that the marketers use on us every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, and like smartphones are such a good example of that where like they actually do make it so that the new updates make the phone slower so that you have to buy the new phone. And <laughs> yeah, oh my God, it makes me Absolutely. crazy. Yeah. I know. Um, what's one thing that other people seem to spend a lot of money on that you just don't really value that you don't care about? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. I would say technology is probably one thing, yeah, like the same. thing with the phone, <laughs> <laughs> the phones, it drives me nuts too. Like, um, my husband has, he likes to get the new iPhone 45 or whatever. It's coming out <laughs> that year. And I have like, you know, this droid that works perfectly fine for me. It has my GPS on it. If I need to use my email, I have that on it, but I don't value spending a bunch of money on new technology every other year for a phone. So I don't, I don't care about stuff like that. Clothes and shoes, I no longer really care about that stuff anymore. As long as I'm nice and put together, I have a lot of high quality stuff in my closet that I've accumulated over the years. So I could probably go another five, 10 years if I having to buy a single new pair of, um, you know, clothing item or whatever, but just replace small things that wear out easily, like, you know, underwear or whatever. But other than that, you know, I just try to use what I have, but I try not to buy a bunch of clothes and shoes and stuff that people seem to be focused on a lot because I've been there. I've done that. I've spent so much money over the years on that stuff. I'm like, now what's next? What am, what am I using my money for that can actually be an appreciable asset, asset instead of something that's just going to like fall apart in a year? Yeah. I mean, and I feel like so often we need the experience of having gone through, well, I've spent my money that way and it really didn't make me that happy. Right. So then every time it's like, you want to fall back into that trap to be like, well, you did this already. You like didn't love this. So it's okay to do something differently. I've gone through all kinds of iterations with the consumerism thing. I I was in a phase where, you know, I love makeup. So I was buying a ton of makeup. It's not as expensive. So you can go out and spend a whole bunch of money on, you know, or a little bit of money and get a whole bunch of stuff for your money when you buy makeup. So I went through that phase. I went through the shoe phase. I went through a thing with purses. (laughs) Like I've been there, done it. I've had a a $500 car payment. That's, that's the car that I'm actually still driving to this day is 14 years old now. And it's been long since paid off. So 
yeah, I've been through that. You know, I try not to judge people if that's that's what you value. That's where you should spend your money. But I don't value those things. And people will make fun of you. I've been called cheap, you know, over the years. My family will joke me all the time and call me cheap. But I'm like, you know what? You can call me cheap, but you'll never call me broke. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. Yeah, I think I think you're right about the not judging other people. This is one of those things too, where it's like getting in alignment with what you value. And that's going to be different from what other people value. And I think a sort of pitfall that I fell into with money, and this happens to me a lot, when I am making a change in my life, I tend to like swing the pendulum too far to the other side before I find somewhere in the middle that, you know, when I was paying off my debt, I went into sort of... Um, uh, g- putting on a pedestal, not spending money, right? That like, I'm better because I don't spend a lot of money on shoes. It was almost like a self-esteem thing. Like, oh, look at me and like how little money I spend on like these kind of consumerist things. And then that kind of got me got me into the trap of feeling guilty spending any money on myself. Like it's never okay to buy lipstick or it's never, you know, like having to find some kind of a middle ground of, okay, it's not all or nothing. It doesn't mean that to pay back my debt, I have to like wear a burlap sack and like not care about anything. You know what I mean? It's like finding a place that like feels good for you. So somewhere in the middle. Absolutely. There has to be balance in all things. You can definitely take things too far on the frugal spectrum if you're not too careful. So, you know, I always encourage people to have some, some room in your budget for, for just stuff that's fun. You know, if, if you can't afford fun, you can't afford your life. Mm-hmm. That's something that um, Elizabeth Warren says all the time. If you can't afford fun, then you can't afford your life. So there should be some room for your for fun in your budget. So even if it's just twenty dollars, you know, fun money to buy a tube of lipstick if you want, or to to blow it on coffee or whatever you want, you know, whether you call it an allowance or whether you call it blow money or fun money, there should be something that is like non negotiable that you hold on to, even if you're paying off debt, you know, if you and if you include that money in your budget, then you don't feel like you're depriving yourself all the time. You should have some things that you do just for fun. Mm-hmm. And so that you keep yourself balanced. Yeah, I've actually found too that keeping that number smaller has helped me get more enjoyment from it because it forces me to be more intentional. Like when I wasn't really paying attention and I would just go and like spend, I don't know, $100 here or there on like fast fashion stuff that in the end, like it didn't make me happy. It was kind of just like mindless shopping, right? Of the like, oh, it's a new season, so probably I should buy new things. If I'm thinking, okay, well, it's $50, like what's the way that I could spend $50 that would bring me the most joy this month? Like making it a little bit more intentional, I find it for me is more important than the actual dollar amount. Yes. So when you put a cap on it, it's like you get kind of creative about how how far you can stretch that money or you get very selective about what you spend it on. Because, you know, for me, I'm like, if I have $100 in spending money for that month and I'm not exceeding it, best believe I'm going to be very critical as far as what I spend that money on. Mm-hmm. Can you talk me through your current budgeting process? How do you determine what you spend and where? How structured is that? Um, so it's pretty structured. I'm a, I love budgets. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It keeps me sane. It keeps me feeling like I have a sense of control over my money. So I don't really struggle with doing the budget. I think it's fun. My husband, on the other hand, does not necessarily share my enthusiasm. (laughs) You're, you're preaching to the choir. I'm in, I'm like the money manager of our household. My husband's like, okay, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, um, I traditionally, I'm more of a pen and paper type of person as far as the budget and putting everything on paper. I just like doing it the old fashioned way. But when I do my videos and things like that, I started doing an Excel spreadsheet. So that I find is easy because I always have my my uh, my computer with me and I take it with me to work or I can pull up my spreadsheet wherever I am and make edits to it, whereas I'm not always carrying around my budget binder with all this paper in it. So I can overwrite my budget every month and uh, it's pretty structured. I look at my budget 
a couple of times a week and just update the numbers and things like that as I'm spending money. But um, I don't like to get too bogged down on it because I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. It's something that I don't necessarily feel I've mastered because your budget should always be fluid. It's always evolving. But it's something that I feel like I'm pretty good at and I have a handle over. So I don't want to spend too, too much time focusing on the numbers so much. But that's pretty much my budgeting process. I sit down at the uh, just before the beginning of the month, put all my projected numbers in, and it, then I just update it throughout the month as I go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so even though if you're not spending a ton of time on it, I mean, touching it a couple of times a week, like that's still, it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There's, it's just kind of second nature for me because just something I've grown accustomed to doing over the over the years. It doesn't take a ton of time, but if I just take um, my day for me is Sundays, that's kind of like um, it's my, my money date or I call them my office hours. You know, I'm the chief financial officer of my home. So Sundays are my office hours where I sit down and look at my budget, go over my, my financial goals, what my, my numbers are. And, um, I have that dedicated time where I can just sit down get it done for the week and, you know, keep it moving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned that, you know, building wealth with an eye on financial independence is a big focus for you right now. Um, talking about that a little bit and like in as much, I guess, like detail as you feel comfortable with, I feel like a lot of the, the questions that come up around people wanting people to be more honest about money, a lot of it comes down to where money comes from this idea of, you know, did, do you have help from your parents is, you know, for other people, is it debt? Is it, you know, whatever. So for you and your family, can you just kind of list off where, where the money comes from that's coming in right now? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so for us, neither one of us came from not, neither my husband nor myself came from a background where we were super privileged or anything like that. So there's definitely not like when we got married, we didn't have anybody giving us a down payment for a home or anything like that. We paid for our wedding ourselves and, we kind of built everything that we have from working hard and doing that kind of thing. So, um, so currently where the money comes from, I'm, I'm primarily the breadwinner in the household right now. My husband is a pastor. He went to school for, um, for divinity and has a master's in divinity, went to seminary and was in a position where he was working full time as a pastor, receiving a salary, getting benefits and all of that. But one of his goals was to start a, a church from from like scratch. <laughs> which wow, that's a huge <laughs> undertaking. I imagine oh, it's it's huge. Like it's a lot of work to and to to build a church from scratch, and it entailed us leaving a house that we had in another state and moving to it back to our home state of Maryland, and um, losing a, losing an income, going down to one income. So um, I've I've been kind of the primary breadwinner for the past, I guess, almost four years now, and pretty much for the bulk of our marriage, I've always out earned my husband. So that's, that's also an interesting dynamic as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, so, okay, yeah, well, I guess, like, let's take that tangent. When you say that's an interesting <laughs> dynamic, can you tell me more? Say more? <laughs> sure. So, so it's, it's always a, a, a interesting dynamic when a when a female makes more money than her husband. And it's not something that I ever thought about, like as a younger woman, like this is the situation I would kind of find myself in, but it's just the situation that I'm in now. And additionally, I'm the person that's kind of more money minded. So initially we did decide when we first got married that I would be the one that would take the lead on the finances in terms of doing the budget and writing the bills and things like that. But I did find over time that I started getting a little resentful, like, okay, we all live in this house together. You know, I'm not, I'm not the only one that, that should be focused on the financial stuff. And so I had to be intentional about having a conversation with my husband, like, Hey, you know, 
we should sit down and have some discussions about where we're going. Like, you know, what, what are we doing with this whole money thing? Where are we trying to go? Where are our goals financially for our family? And, um, you know, because I started to get resentful, like, why am I the only one focused on paying the bills and, um, you know, kind of growing our net worth, you know, we have to sit down and do this kind of as a couple. Mm-hmm. So what does that actually look like to do that as a couple? Like, is it, uh, I guess this is a question that comes up too. like how, you know, partners handle finances. Is it joint money? Is it separate money? Who does what? Like, how are they having like regular financial meetings about it? Um, so since kind of you were feeling resentful and sat down and had that conversation, what does it look like now? How you guys handle it together? So my husband is still not really a money minded kind of person. He's not a spender per se. Like sometimes you have the spender and the saver dynamic. I've always definitely been the more of the saver. He's not necessarily a spender. He's just kind of like not really interested in the day to day nuts and bolts of of the budget and building wealth and those kinds of things. So I just kind of have to sit down and say, hey, we you know, we're in this together. If we're going to take our family to the next level financially. If we're going to achieve these things, we need to do this as a team. We're in this together. We both do equal. Uh, we both do contribute to the household, even though it's not necessarily equal at this point, we're equal partners in this and we have to do this together. So we kind of do like monthly budget meetings where we sit down and talk about the numbers. This is what went well this month. This is what didn't necessarily go well this month. This is what we can correct. And also just have a conversation about shared goals you know, do you want to retire early or what age do you want to retire? How much do you want to travel? Uh, where do you think we'll live when we retire? These are the kind of just open ended questions I started asking my husband instead of kind of coming at him and wagging the finger like, why did you spend this on this? Or why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? Why didn't you stick to the budget? I kind of find that's counterproductive. If I come at him that way, then he gets resentful and feels like he doesn't want to participate in the, in the process. He calls me, um, he's called me a budget hawk. That's his, that's his yeah. terminology. I'm like, where does that come from? Budget hawk. What is that? But, you know, sometimes he says I'm hyper vigilant about the budget. So I try not to be that nagging person where I'm always like, why did you do this? Or why didn't you do that? And so, you know, I just like to have a conversation about shared goals to say, this is where we want to go. And let's work backwards from there. How do we get there? And what does that look like in our everyday life without everyday spending decisions how does that impact where we're trying to go? Mm-hmm. Everything that you just described about your relationship and your different roles I, is like complete echo of my marriage too. <laughs> so I completely relate to that. Uh, yeah, about a year ago, we started having monthly monthly financial meetings um, because similarly, I'm the one, he, my husband makes quite a bit more money than I do, but um, is not really interested, like you said, in sort of the day-to-day management of it or you know doesn't really get excited about investing, whereas these are all things that I really love and love learning about and working on. And so it's, you know, I'm sort of in charge of it. And then, you know, it's funny at the time of this recording, we just had our, our monthly meeting last night. And yeah, same things, just like the specifics, you know, what's going well, what's not. And then um, something that's actually been really helpful for us is talking about the emotional side of it. Like, how do you feel about the way that we're spending our money, right? Because like, to your point from before, it's like aligning your spending with your values that it isn't necessarily always about trying to spend less. It's like spend differently in a way that's going to optimize sort of the happiness or the whatever joy that you're getting from the money that you're spending. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you, I'm, assu- I'm assuming you do know, but do you know approximately the percentage of your income that you save? Hmm. I do. Um, I haven't yet really shared that publicly. Oh yeah. No, you don't uh, have to. That's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's just a question that comes up a bunch is, you know, how much people are, what percentage people are saving. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't tend to go into like great detail about how much I do save. Sometimes it's kind of counterproductive and I find that people get blocked on it. And it's not necessarily that I'm not open to sharing it, but I think sometimes it's a stumbling block for other people because it's like, oh, the only reason why you did this is because you make X or the only reason why you did this is because you save this amount of money. How can I ever get there? And it's like, start where you are. Don't Mm -hmm. look at me. (laughs) Look at me in, in a way to get motivation. But if it's now demotivating for you or you find that you're making unhealthy comparisons, then it's not productive at that point. Yeah, so, I think I think that's a great point, like the sort of line between honesty and when that can like tip over into uh, unhelpful comparisons. Yeah, like I, I go back and forth about how much to share, you know, does it come across as braggy? <laughs> you know, so I struggle with that on my YouTube channel in terms of how much to share. And because like I'm documenting sort of my journey on this process, I'm always careful about how much to share because my husband is, um, although he's on board with the the journey that I'm, I'm on right now in terms of where we're trying to go financially as a couple with the household, I don't, he's not necessarily comfortable with me, let's say sharing how much money he brings in, for example, whereas I wouldn't really care either way, you know, about sharing how much I, how much I earn. It doesn't, doesn't really impact me as much, but I'm kind of sensitive to that. I don't want to overshare and then make him feel uncomfortable as well. But I would definitely say that we try to go well above and beyond the traditional 10%. You know, 10% savings rate that most experts recommend, that is good. Like, if you could do that, that's awesome. Because traditionally, most Americans save abysmally at about 5% of their take-home pay. Mm-hmm. So if you can get to 10, like, that's that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to achieve financial independence, you really have to get to the point where you can maybe get like 50% savings rate or higher. And that will get you there hopefully in, you know, less than 10 years, depending on what the actual numbers are. So I just always focus on increasing that number incrementally. If, you know, if I say 50%, then people may get overwhelmed by that, but it's definitely something to strive for and it's definitely achievable. And you can do it on an average salary. I, I will say I am open about saying that I do have an above average salary. But um, I don't think that you have to have an above average salary to have a good savings rate. And I think some people sometimes misconstrue it because they think, oh, if I can get to a six figure salary, then I'm going to just be good with money. All of a sudden, I'm going to save this money. I'm going to do that. I know plenty of six figure couples and six figure families that don't that barely have a dime to their name. And they also know people who have a combined household income of 50,000 and they can hit that 50% savings rate. So it's not about how much you earn. It really is about growing that gap between what you earn and what you spend and being able to increase that savings rate and invest the rest. Yeah, I think that's incredibly well said. I think that circles back to what you were mentioning earlier for yourself of as your income was increasing, being really intentional about not letting your expenses and your lifestyle inflate with that, which I think is really common, right? It's like just because you have more money doesn't mean that you need to spend more money. So it's like if you're not spending your money in a way that feels good at when you're making $30,000, all of a sudden getting to six figures, right? Like those, it's like the habits have to change along with the income changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, I think about this too, what you were saying before about how, how honest to be about things, you know, does that bring about, you know, potentially problematic comparisons? And I think the answer is yes. And I also think that, 
the answer is not necessarily because it sort of depends on the spirit in which it's shared. Like just as someone who's been consuming a lot of your work, I never feel like you have the attitude of, well, this is what I'm doing. So this is what everybody should be doing, right? There's a difference between being like preachy about it versus just being honest of here's where I'm at right now. This isn't where I was always at. This is what I'm doing. Like I remember when I was saving no money, right? And then like you said, incrementally that goes up. And I think when we did our calculations last year, it was 39% that we saved. And the goal for this year is to get closer to 45 or 50. And that certainly wasn't always the case. Right. And so I think, I don't know, there's, I'm hopeful that there's, that people can hear honesty and not take it as, oh, then this is what I should be doing. You know? Mm. Absolutely. I agree with that hundred percent. What are you currently interested in learning more about when it comes to money? It sounds like this is obviously something that you think about all the time. Is there anything (laughs) that you're kind of like, oh, I'm obsessed with this. I want to know more about this. Hmm. Um, so right now my current obsession is really learning more about investing. Um, so I'm learning more about index investing and also trying to build, um, passive streams of income. So looking into getting more into real estate, we, we have a rental property, like a house that we lived in previously and didn't want to sell because it wasn't a good time to sell. So we held on to it and we have some tenants in there. So looking at some ways where I can build up this, sort of uh, portfolio of assets that will be generating me money kind of in the background where I'm not actively doing that, you know, hours for dollars kind of thing. So that's kind of what I'm focused on right now and trying to figure out how I can do that because I know that I can bring in good money by trading all of my time for it, but that's not something that I'm interested in doing. I'm not getting any younger and my kids aren't getting any younger. So I want to be able to kind of grow that passive income stream more. So that is my current obsession. So when you say um, learning more about investing and index investing, are there any go-to sort of like teachers, mentors, resources? Like where do you go for for information to learn about this kind of stuff? Do you have any favorite resources to recommend for people? Sure. So I read a lot of blogs, a lot of financial independence blogs. I read a lot of books. My current favorite financial independence podcast is the Choose FI uh, podcast. That's an excellent one one uh, where you can get a ton of information and kind of figure out how to do this whole financial independence thing for yourself, or even just figure out how to be just better with your money in general, but stuff that people aren't really talking about in the traditional sense. Most of us know kind of the right things to do to do the traditional personal finance advice. We don't always do it, but just being able to see other models of people who are able to retire by 40 and you know, travel the country in an RV, which by the way, is one of the things on my bucket list is to to travel cross country in an RV and to visit all 50 states. And um, to be able to do those kinds of things and see an example uh, is awesome and is really powerful. So Choose FI podcast is one of my current favorites, but I'm the type of person that just is constantly learning, always reading. Just the personal finance section in my library, I'm always there checking out books and um, reading something new because I always find new things that inspire me to take it to the next level. So I just encourage people to always read and learn for yourself. And you don't have to always implement all of the advice that you get because there are there's a ton of advice out there. And some of it is kind of that one size fits all personal finance stuff. Take from it what is going to work for you and, um, you know, toss the rest and just figure out what's going to work best for you and your family. Mm-hmm. As your kids are starting to get older, what are you teaching them about money? Hmm. Well, I teach them about, um, about how to save the importance of saving. I try to teach them how to be intentional about saving and spending 
And um, one thing that I'm always teaching them is the the value of a dollar. You know, what it, that somebody had to go out and work hard, that mommy and daddy work hard to get this money. It's not just here for you all to to blow it or to spend it. And what I find is that when they're spending my money, when I'm in the store, they have a ton of things. But when I say, oh, well, how about you spend some of your, your money that you got for your birthday? Then they start getting selective and putting things back <laughs> because they know they're spending their own money. And that's an important thing for all of us to remember. When you're spending somebody, else mo- somebody else's money, we get pretty liberal about it. And that's kind of how it is when you have a credit card in your hand. It's like spending somebody else's money. And there's no limit on kind of what you can do other than what that credit limit is. And it's the same way with kids. When they are constantly spending your money, they feel like, um, you know, they're not really valuing those things as much. So I try to teach them the value of that and that it takes hard work to to get where you want to go in life. And um, I just try to lead by example a lot of times, but also be intentional about sitting them down and saying, this is, you know, this is how you save and this is what you're going to do. And when you go to college, it's not free. Somebody's going to have to pay for that. You're either going to have to pay for it or Mommy and daddy are going to have to help you pay for it, but somebody's going to have to pay for it. And um, just having those conversations with them even now as they're young. But I don't want them to grow up feeling insecure about money. So that's why I don't want to over harp on it and just be like the budget, the budget. No, we can't do this. I don't want to always be that person that's saying no and have them growing up feeling insecure about money. But it, it's a again, it goes back to this thing of balance, because when you're somebody that grows up not having a lot, you naturally feel inclined, or I should say, I feel naturally inclined to give my kids, to give them more than I had in life. But at the same time, sometimes I see them becoming a little more, you know, having this um, spooled kind of entitled mentality that I don't like. And we worked hard to get, let's say in this neighborhood where we are, and they're surrounded by a bunch of kids where the parents are kind of high income earners and they have a lot. And I don't want them to get into this position where they feel like they are entitled to just have whatever they want. No, mom and dad worked hard to get into this neighborhood. It takes hard work and you're going to have to work hard as well. So just it's fine. It's hard to find that balance between giving them more without spoiling them or overdoing it. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a big question. How do you help kids develop a healthy relationship with money, right? It's the same thing with like how to develop a healthy relationship with food or anything else. Like obviously if there was a, you know, do these five steps and everything will be awesome. You know, if you knew those five steps, you would be a gazillionaire because, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, yeah. Um, so I want to circle back a little bit to, um, we were talking about side hustling. Um, I remember reading that you wrote, I'm not sure if it was on Instagram or on your blog. Um, that's, uh, you said side hustling is the secret weapon in your debt payoff arsenal. And I'm curious, if this idea of, I don't know, like whatever, however you define kind of like side hustling, if that's always been a part of your approach, like tell me the origins of Nicole, the side hustler. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I have a long standing history with side hustling. Like I said, my mother is, you know, the original side hustler because she always seemed to have something extra going on, even outside of her full-time job to, you know, make ends meet or be able to save up money to, you know, if we wanted to move to a new place or whatever, she would pick up a second part-time job or something like that. And for me, I think I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. So when I was in elementary school, actually was my first, I guess, side hustle. My mother might've given me five or $10 to go to the corner store. We had these corner stores and kind of convenience stores in Baltimore. And, you know, so she would give me $5 and I would go to the store and buy all these snacks or whatever. And I, I guess she thought I was eating them myself. But what I would do is take them to school and resell them for a profit. <laughs> <laughs> it was like 100% pure profit anyway, because I didn't work to get that money to buy the 
the, you know, the, the, the stuff that I was selling anyway. So I would do that and um, make a pretty good profit at school. So I, I started doing that and she found out about it. And I think at first she was a little upset, but then she was like, man, wait a minute, that's kind of smart. That's <laughs> so hilarious. Was, <laughs> so I started doing that. Also had like a, a art business where I'm not like creative at all in terms of like artistic or can draw. But my uncle, who was only a few years um, older than me, he's my, my mother's much younger brother. And um, he could draw. So I'd say, hey, can you draw these pictures for me? I'll buy the supplies. You draw. I'm going to resell them. And so I would sell the artwork and kind of keep all the money for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not the best business ethics, but I was in elementary school. But, you know, the, the spirit of entrepreneurship was there. And then when I was in middle school, I actually made homemade jewelry, beaded jewelry, earrings and things. And I would sell them at, at school. And then um, going into high school, I babysat for younger cousins and things like that. So I always was kind of excited about trying to figure out how to make more money and to hold on to that money. I was always holding on to a dollar, that's for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God, those are great stories. Um, so you started the YouTube channel before the blog, right? Tell me sort of the origin story of, um, of your business, of Frugal Chic Life. Sure. So I, yeah, I started the, the YouTube channel first and... I kind of just, while I was working on paying off this debt, I was trying to figure out new strategies, ways to save money and things like that. So I stumbled down the rabbit hole of YouTube and found this whole debt-free community and budgeting community on there. And so one day I decided to just sit down in my webcam and make a video. And I made my very first video, which I kind of cringe looking back on it now at that video. But then I just started it from there. I didn't start out to say, I'm going to start this YouTube channel and this blog and all this stuff behind it. It just kind of evolved organically and people started watching and commenting and things like that. And it's overall, it's a very supportive community on YouTube. So I started the YouTube channel and then I, I started making these t-shirts. So I actually just ordered the t-shirt for myself and it said, debt sucks on the front. And I wore it in one of the videos and somebody was like, oh, I like your t-shirt. Do you sell them? And I'm like, um, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I sell them. <laughs> and then I started uh, getting this. Um, I got my website together and started selling the t-shirts on my website. Started doing a little bit of blogging. And then people, a few people were like, oh, do you do coaching? And I'm like, why? Yes, I do. Even though in the back of my mind, I'm like, I don't do no coaching, <laughs> but I'm going to figure out how to do it because obviously it's in demand. So then that's kind of how that e- evolved in helping people. And it just kind of evolved out of, for one, personal finance and money is kind of a hobby for me. It's something I'm interested in. And I realized that people struggle a lot in this area. And if I can do anything to kind of inspire and motivate people to get their money together, then I get a lot of fulfillment from from doing that. And that's kind of how everything evolved. So with your coaching, how would you describe the people that are the best fit people to work with you? Hmm. Well, ideally, I like to work with people who are kind of, I would say earning an average salary, earning or, or earning what they say is quote unquote good money, but don't know where their money's going. It's like, okay, I did the right things. I went to school. I got a degree, but where's all my money going? Like you sit down at the end of the year, you look at your W2. Did I really earn all this money? Where did it go? Those are like the ideal people that I like to work with because you can do so much. You have a, a good, a good foundation to work from. You, you earn quote unquote good money but you just have to figure out how to be a good steward over what it is that you're bringing in. And I just realized that a lot of people just literally don't know where their money's going because they feel out of control with it or they feel ill-equipped to handle it. So those are the people that I like to work with and people that really have kind of some of those money blocks that we talked about and helping them figure out why they make the decisions that they do um, 
with money. Yeah, on your blog a couple months ago, um, you shared that you've been focusing your efforts on really treating your business like an actual business and not just a hobby. And I'd love to know sort of like specifically, what did you mean by that? Like, what does it look like to treat it like a business and not just like a hobby? So to treat it like a hobby is just something that I was doing casually, just like, oh, something I can just kind of pick up and put down. But if I'm really going to look at it as a business, then I need to treat it as such and treat it as a priority. Like, when I go to work to my day job, I don't just go in there casually. I go in there knowing that I need to work. I know I need to get get the work in to get paid. And it's kind of the same way with with building my own business from the ground up. So when I started this whole thing, I never thought anything would come out of it in terms of starting a business from it or even starting just a, a side hustle from it or that I could make money from it. And then once I started realizing that I can do that, you know, the natural entrepreneur in me came out and said, hey, I can kind of build another side arm to my side hustle journey here by, by helping people doing something that I was naturally doing anyway, but realizing that I'm putting a lot of time, a lot of energy and effort into it. And if I'm doing that and I'm buying resources uh, or buying tools, getting new cameras and getting lights and upgrading my, my camera situation, then I should be getting something back from it. Um, and what I found also is that in the beginning, I offered to help a lot of people for free. I would look at people's budgets or sit down and offer to like mentor people for free, completely for free. And some of those people were the, the people that were not as serious about it. It's like when I'm offering you to, to help you for free, I shouldn't have to hunt you down to go over your budget. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, but that was a signal to me that people weren't really you know, that that person wasn't really serious about the whole journey. But what I find is, is that when people are putting their money up, then they get a little more serious about it. So when, um, when I started setting some prices and charging for it, I found that people were a little more intentional about doing the actual work that needed to be done. And I knew that they were serious about committing themselves to make a change. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that's, I think that's relatable all across the board that it's, it also weeds out the people that aren't going to take it seriously. And why are you going to waste your time working with someone who like, doesn't even take it seriously, right? Like that's not respectful to you. Exactly. And if I'm really saying that time is my greatest asset, then I'm not just going to give it away to somebody who doesn't value it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I respect and love the most about sort of your approach, I feel like in not just in, in the world of money, but like in the coaching space or online business, I think that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of, you know, people who aren't willing to be transparent and you like, look at what they're doing and it like, are they making a lot of money? Are they not making a lot of money? Like, does this really work? You know, there's, and, and I love the series of blog posts that you do about your side hustles where it's like specific dollar amounts. Like here's exactly what I earned in the past month from this, from this, from this. I don't know. Like I find that to be incredibly refreshing. Oh, thank you so much. That was sort of my compromise to do to be able to show the numbers. So I share my side hustle income on my blog, but I don't share like my, our full time incomes that we bring in, like with support our household. I don't share that publicly, but I do find that it's kind of motivating to people to see like, yes, you can build up this side hustle to the point where you can replace your full time income. And it's definitely possible to to do that. So I get a lot of good feedback on that. I've never gotten anybody saying, oh, why are you sharing this? And, you know, I, I don't usually get those types of comments from people. Most people are supportive and um, find the information helpful. So I found that as kind of my way to balance sharing um, information without oversharing too much to the point where you know, I might make my husband uncomfortable or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. But and also you are 
very forthcoming about the fact that you and your husband both do have day jobs, right? That it's, I mean, I I think it was like a one line item in one of the posts that I read that, you know, your main monthly household budget is made up from your income and his income. And this is side stuff. So even acknowledging that, like, I feel like there's, you know, there's like some weird shame or taboo around, you know, this thing that I'm doing online, like that I also have to hustle and have a day job where, I mean, that's been my choice to be so open about the fact that the reason I was able to do this podcast and build up the sort of listener funded model slowly is because my partner makes a lot more money than I do. Right. And I feel like it's just, there's just, I don't know, like something comforting about people being honest about where the money comes from. Cause money always has to come from somewhere. It's coming from a day job. It's coming from credit cards. It's coming from a partner. It's coming from family. And I don't know, kind of like removing whatever weird ickiness is there is around being honest from that. Like, I don't need to know how much you make in your day job in order to find it refreshing that you admit that this thing that you're doing online isn't your full-time job yet, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, it's always a fine balance between that transparency and oversharing, but I do, I think there's definitely value in that and people seeing that you are willing to be open about it. And yeah, just, just go behind the scenes and, and see what it really takes to to do this whole online thing. And what I found is that, you know, if a lot of the online entrepreneurs and, you know, marketers and things like that, they'll have these pictures of them laying out on the beach with a, you know, a fruity drink in their hand with a laptop. And like, this is their lifestyle. You don't just start out from there. (laughs) You know, I'm definitely not there. I mean, of course it would be nice to just get paid and not do anything, but they don't talk about like the years of building up you know, their side hustles are building up to that point where you could actually have that, you know, quote unquote laptop lifestyle, you know, so it doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I do like, and the reason why I do what I do is because for one, there are not a lot of people that look like me in the personal finance space for one being a woman and then just being a brown woman at that. You know, if you go on YouTube, the vast majority of the personal finance kind of debt free YouTubers, most of them are Caucasian. So there are not a people, a, a not, not a lot of people in that community that that look like me. So the fact that I can be a face and say, "Hey, like we can do this too," you know, it's not just quote unquote privileged white people that can get to the point of um, financial independence or just privileged people in general, but somebody that looks like you can do this. You know, I find that that is a a big thing because the poverty mentality is like it's a real thing. I've ex- experienced it myself and experienced it with people in my family. You know, I was just thinking about this, um, this morning, I was telling you that I was 27 when I had my first child. And when I sat down, I was talking to my grandmother, which no disrespect to my grandmother, but you know, we sat down and had this conversation. I was like, Hey, you know, I'm pregnant. And she was like, Oh, well, you know, you can go down to WIC now and WIC is women and infant children, low income program where you can get, you know, formula milk and stuff for your baby if you're low income. And it's like, no, like grandma, I make way too much money to ever do that. Like at this point in my life, but when that's all you've seen, when that's like, Oh, you get pregnant, you, you know, usually are a younger person in your life and you know, we don't have anything. So you got to go down and sign up to get your WIC vouchers. And it's like, no, that's, that's not going to be me. That's not my lifestyle. And, um, the fact that I can show a different side of that spectrum for people that look like me and people that come from a background, like I do, that it is um, achievable. You don't have to have a silver spoon. You don't have to have rich parents. You don't have to have parents that um, pay for you to go to school. You can achieve these things with a lot of hard work and dedication, but you do have to also overcome some of that 
poverty men- mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's something really powerful about, you know, when we only see the same type of people doing something, right? It's, it would be easy to think, oh, the only people who, who can understand, you know, finance or, you know, personal finance are, you know, older white dudes. Right. But right. it's like to be like, okay, well, no, that's not true. Just because that's been like what's mostly represented doesn't mean that that's true. And yeah, no, I, I completely hear what you're saying. And just to be able to say, hey, this doesn't just look like this, that this is not just for people, you know, that can resonate with that specific background. Absolutely. What have you found to be one of the most rewarding parts of starting this business? Hmm. Um, I say the ability to help other people. When I get emails from people that say, and these may not even be people that I worked with directly, but somebody who just stumbled, stumbled across my debt payoff video, my student loan debt payoff video and said, man, the fact that you came out and said that you had this you know, six figures in debt and you paid it off, like I'm inspired by you. I'm glad that you put this information out there. You helped me, you helped inspire me or motivate me to do it. And now I know that it's possible for me. Like that part is the most fulfilling part. Even just the free content that I have available, even though I'm not able to work with everybody. And some people come out and say, man, I would love to work with you, but I'm just not in a position financially where I can do that. And I'm like, I can completely respect that. And I have a ton of uh, free content that you can definitely consume and get you started to the point where maybe we can work together in the future or just to jumpstart you and maybe work with somebody else that's better equipped to handle your needs or whatever the case may be. But just getting those that feedback from people to say, man, you really helped me. You helped and mm-hmm. helped inspire me like that is super fulfilling. And uh, the fact that I'm able to generate almost like something from nothing. It's one thing to be able to go to your job and work and clock in and clock out and get a paycheck from what you went to school for or whatever. But the fact that I didn't go to school for personal finance, the fact that I'm able to bring in some income from my passion, from creating um, a challenge or from creating a workbook or a course or something that I created and be able to bring in and generate some money from something that, you know, I created in my own brain. Like that's super powerful for me and empowering to say that maybe I can get to the point where I completely replace my full-time income by doing this whole thing. I'm not sure that that's what I want to do. I go back and forth. I don't want to like trade one set of handcuffs for another and be like handcuffed to this business now that I need to grow. I want it to just flow organically and be something that's going to support my lifestyle and, get me closer to that point of financial independence. Mm, that's so unbelievably well said. And I, you like can't see me, but I'm nodding along so much. So much of what you just described is exactly how I feel about the podcast, that it is incredibly rewarding to create something from nothing, right? And to be like, wow, I'm a really curious person. Maybe I could be professionally curious. <laughs> you know? and, uh, exactly. Like, that's so much fun. I'm like, people actually would be willing to pay me to do this stuff that I, I, I do for free all the time. Like, you know, I always tell people like, I'm not like, this super duper, you know, book nerd or anything like I'm you know, super high, key, high IQ or anything like that. But I've always been a, a person that just naturally loves to learn. And 95, 99% of what I know about money, it came from a book. Like mm-hmm. I didn't grow up necessarily learning all of these lessons or anything, but I love to read and I, I'm always craving new knowledge and information that I like to pass on to other people. Yeah. So um, one of the last questions I wanted to ask uh, with this idea of treating the business more like a business and not just a hobby, do you have um, a specific business goal for 2018? Like what's something that you would love to have done or accomplished in the business by the end of this year? What would feel awesome? Hmm. Huh, what would feel awesome? So one of the things I'm working on is growing my email list, which right now I only have a, I wouldn't say only, let me take that back. I'm trying not to use that word only 
2000, about 2000 people on my email list, which I think is a pretty big deal because I grew it fairly quickly. And the reason why I say I'm not using that only terminology is, is because if I had 2000 people sitting in front of me in an audience, like I'd be shaking in my boots, <laughs> you know, 2000 people sitting down here willing to listen to what I have to say. But when you hear this stuff online, 2000 sounds like a small number in terms of an email list, but like I have 2000 people, I can hit their inbox and just share what I know about money. So just be being able to grow my community, grow my Facebook group. And um, as far as like an income goal, I just wanted to hit the five figure mark for 2018. And, you know, that doesn't have to be like $90,000. If I hit the the $20,000 mark in my business this year, that would be a good year for me. Mm, I love that. Um, so before we start to wrap up, is there anything um, that we haven't talked about so far that you wanted to mention? No, I think we've covered covered it. We talked about everything. Um, so the way that um, we end these episodes are with some fun, well, hopefully fun, rapid fire questions um, that the Patreon community wants me to ask all of our guests this season. So if you're down to answer seven totally random questions. <laughs> <laughs> sure. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast lately? Oh, my favorite thing to eat for breakfast. Um, probably grits. <laughs> that's like a non-sexy breakfast answer. It doesn't, but. doesn't have to be sexy. It sounds pretty sexy to me. <laughs> sounds great. Grits. Yeah, probably grits. And if I had to add something else, probably a smoothie. Grits and a smoothie. I love it. Um, what's the one thought that gives you the most butterflies right now? Like when you think about it, you get all excited and tingly, maybe even a little bit nervous. Mm, achieving financial independence. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. Um, what's one belief or opinion, certainly doesn't have to be about money, but it can be one belief or opinion that you've totally done a 180 on like something that you used to believe that you no longer do? Mm, something that I believe that I no longer do. Hmm. That's a good question. That's a hard one. I know, right? I, when people put these questions forward, I'm like, man, this community is so smart and has such good questions. <laughs> I have such a hard time narrowing them down every season. Hmm. Oh, man, that's difficult. I uh, mean, and I feel like we touched on some of it in in the money stuff of like, oh, I deserve this. So therefore, I should like splurge on all these things. So I don't know if it's something in that vein or. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely something like that, that success does not have to be what anybody else says it has to be that I get to create my own definition of what success looks like. And that's so much more fun than living up to somebody else's uh, expectation of what my life should be like. Yeah. Or having to keep up with someone else. Yeah, absolutely. What's something that you're finding frustrating right now? Like one thing or area of your life that's a bit challenging. Mm. Wanting to do so much, but feeling like I have so little time to get it done. (laughs) Yeah. Relatable. (laughs) Relatable. Yeah. That is such a big thing because, um, especially because I'm the type of person that I give myself wholeheartedly to an idea. Once I get on something, it's hard for me to get off of it. So I feel like I need to do everything in this business and I need to grow my email list and I need to build up my community and I need to be doing webinars and I need to be creating products and I need to do all this stuff. And it's like, no girl, you need to be realistic. You have a one-year-old and you have two other children and you have a husband. And you have a day job, you have all these things, and you cannot get everything done. So just starting to focus on creating one goal that I need to get done this week and working on that instead of feeling like I need to do everything at one time, just slowing myself down. And I'm actually doing like a, a information fast. I feel like I've been 
doing too much, listening to too many podcasts, hearing too many voices, and I need to just hone in on doing one thing this week and doing it good. Yeah, yeah, I go through phases like that too, where it's like too much new information for sure. And, you know, I, I think it's it's so interesting what you just said too about, um, okay, well, sure, it's challenging because you want to do all the things and can't do all the things. And yet it doesn't mean do no things, right? That it's like, I love what you said about, it's sort of this idea that gradual forward progress is still forward progress. Absolutely. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to feel like you have to do it all now. You, there's always tomorrow. Yeah. Um, what's one thing that you consider totally worth splurging on? Ooh, travel easily, hands down travel. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. trips planned this year that you're excited about? Several. <laughs> so my husband and I, one of one of the things I can get him excited about is travel. He likes to travel also. So I can always kind of frame the budgeting thing like, hey, if we can cut back on this, we can have more money to travel. So he can get excited about that as opposed to just saying, eh, it's time to go sit down and do the budget. So trips that I have planned this year, we are taking the kids to Disney. We're going to do that this summer. I'm also planning to attend FinCon, which is a uh, conference for personal finance bloggers, bloggers, you know, YouTubers, podcasters. And I'm going to be attending that this year. I went last year and it was awesome. Like I found my people, my tribe. So I'm going there. That's also going to be in Florida, hoping to also go out to the West coast and go to San Francisco. My husband wants to attend a conference. So I'm probably going to go with him to do that. Probably doing just a lot of domestic travel this year. And we've already been to, we went to Phoenix in January and to the Grand Canyon. It was so awesome. I know. I saw that. I hiked the Arizona Trail last fall and it goes rim to rim through the Grand Canyon and it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that on your Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in Arizona. I know Arizona well now. Um, The next question is about books. Um, Which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Mm. Oh, that's big. It's so hard to. I know. I feel the same way. I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) I can't. It's like picking favorite children. (laughs) Yeah. It's um, one that I revisit a lot is called All Your Worth by Elizabeth Warren. I quoted her earlier. It's an awesome book that she co-wrote with her daughter. That's um, that's an awesome book. I read a lot of Dave Ramsey. I circle back to his books a lot and um, his messages resonate with a lot of people in my audience. So I I go back to those books all the time. Um, My Bible, I read, try to read my Bible every day. So that's the one I'm always revisiting. And um, what other books? Yeah, it's so hard to narrow it down, but those are, those are a few. Yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community of the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Hmm. The biggest, I would say most powerful thing I would say is to track your money, to go back and just do a retroactive look at where your money has been going. Because I constantly hear people ask themselves this question, where's my money going? Where did all my money go? And sometimes a lot of people think that the default position is just to go out and earn more. But a lot of times you're already earning enough money. It's just getting a little bit smarter, a little wiser about how you choose to spend that money that you have. So my number one tip there would be to take a retroactive look, maybe a three month look at what you've been spending and where you've been spending your money. Mm-hmm. That's a great tip. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Probably the best place would be my blog, frugalchiclife.com. I'm also frugalchiclife on YouTube, which is 
where most of my community formed from, from YouTube. And I'm also Frugal Chic Life on Instagram as well. Awesome. Um, And are you currently taking new clients in case people are interested? Yes, currently accepting uh, one-on-one clients. And I also do a small group coaching program for people who might be interested in getting a little more accountability with their money, but may not necessarily be able to afford to do like a one-on-one coaching. Awesome. Well, I put links to all of that in the show notes. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Pleasance. Hi, Pleasance. Hello. You ready to answer some random rapid-fire questions and tell me all your secrets? (laughs) Yeah, so excited. Uh, My first question is my favorite question. What are you totally obsessed with right now? (laughs) Okay, super multi-passionate, so all the things. Um, I love everything about the season changing. It's spring here in DC. So uh, Ayurveda is something I teach and study along with my yoga practice. And so I'm obsessed with the season changes in Ayurveda and doing like just paying attention all day so I can take care of myself in different ways, which is really fun and takes up a lot of time. Yeah, I'm into the season changes too. And I'm excited. What are we just a little over a month before I go to DC for the live event mm-hmm. at the time of this recording? Mm-hmm. And I haven't been to DC in years. And I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be good. Um, if you could go back five years and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? Hmm. Um, all is well. Hmm. Um, I think that So five years ago, I owned multiple yoga studios in DC, which I've since closed. And I think that at the time, I was very much into um, thinking that I knew all the things that made me happy and doing them and working hard for them. And um, kind of like the yoga version of hustling. (laughs) And um, since I've let them go, I realize they're so like all is well all is going to be fine. Everything has a reason and a purpose and is flowing. And I like watching that and trusting it. It's kind of around the seasons too, and being able to take space to do that because my sort of old way was not doing that. And I really didn't have any like wise elders sort of supporting me with that. So I really had to learn that myself. Um, Mm. That's but so good. Can you bottle that and give that to me? <laughs> all yes. is well, all is well. All is well. <laughs> and I still say it like 500 times a day now. So, but it's helping. <laughs> I love that. Um, when or in what situation do you feel most yourself? Like when you're totally in your zone and being your truest self, what are you doing? Um, writing, like teaching, sharing. There's always like, I can close my eyes and visualize like with other women, connecting, laughing, just like being together. It's just, um, again, I think I like grew up as an only child in a very like, um, quiet home cause there, my mom was working full time. So it was just me and the TV most nights. And so the whole idea of like community 
and connection, just, I, I just feel so alive, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I can totally relate to that. Yeah. The first thing that you said was writing. Are, is there any writing in particular that you're working on? Um, uh, every day, all day, all the things. Um, I mean, <laughs> your life I, sounds like, like my life. Yes. I know. That's why I listen to you. I'm like, is she in my head? This is crazy. <laughs> yes, I um, am. <laughs> because yeah, I mean, I wake up in the morning and usually write, try to write some memories from some time in the past. And then maybe that turns into a blog post or maybe that stays quiet. I wrote a book a few years ago, two years ago. And so now I really want to write book two, but I can't figure out if that's like for me or for the public. And so I'm, I'm teaching actually a writing class that starts tonight. So I feel like writing is part of also how I like flow in community. Like that's also like, I feel so alive doing it, but I also like talking about writing, mm-hmm. reading about writing. <laughs> yeah. So. For me, the sharing of the writing is a big piece of it too. Like I've tried for years to have, you know, a regular journaling practice or a, I'm just going to write this just for me. And for whatever reason, it doesn't really work or it doesn't work more for a couple of days. The like knowing that someone else's eyeballs are going to be on it is really important for me. Yeah. I actually heard you say that recently and it, i thought about it because there's a lot of blogs that I write. I have a personal blog and then the business one. And so I sort of had to separate them because I felt like some of the stuff on the personal, um, was really personal. And some of those I don't publish, but I heard you say that and thought I was just kind of reflecting on it myself. Like, does it still scratch that itch if I don't press publish? Like who is it for? And, Every time I do that with the work that feels most raw and most true, that's always a stuff where people will like stop me in the grocery store and be like, I read your post. Like it, you know, it, it really helped me or mm-hmm. they'll start, they'll say I started crying or something. And so then it's helpful. But I think that all of us who are creative and write and connect is like, that question comes up a lot. Like what's, I'm always been a sharer, right? So it feels really natural to publish that stuff. Um, but then sometimes there's people who are living in the stories that I don't want to hurt. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, I mean, yes, <laughs> this could, this could be a whole much longer conversation, which we can totally have at some point. But yeah, I find that the more I sort of want to die when I publish something, then like the more emails I get back about it that are always like, so I guess. But um, then I'm wondering like, is that feeding my ego? Like then I get all caught in my head around yeah. like, well, is this about me or is this about them? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it's both. I don't know. Yes, clearly. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, not going to pull at this thread because it goes really deep and we could definitely do this for like six hours. Um, uh, what's one new thing that you would love to try this year? <gasps> new thing. Um, I want to tap dance. That's an awesome answer. <laughs> I've always been really big, like big boned, quote unquote, as a kiddo. And like I was five, eight in third grade with like a size 10 shoe. And so I went to dance class and I was like, I want to do ballet. And they said, no, you're too big. You have to go to jazz. And I was like, I don't want to do jazz. I want to do ballet. And they wouldn't let me and they put me in jazz and they did not let me try any other types of dance. And I really want to tap dance, even though I'm like, I don't know, maybe you don't need to be a body size for it. That was just what they like told me. So I'm going to sign up for a tap dancing class. Um, I can't wait to hear about that. You should totally do that. I love it. Um, (laughs) The last question, what's one thing that you've recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? Um, One thing, um, probably uh, money and marriage. 
like those two things together is my one thing. I mean, yeah, that's me too, clearly. So (laughs) marriage together, because I've been with my husband, I'm turning 40 this year, but we've been together for 21 years. Wow. And I just think that the, that intersection of money and marriage over like kids and no kids and businesses and all of that stuff is like, I just want to have more conversations about it. And I find a lot of people shy away mm-hmm. or don't like they're afraid or put their head in the sand or all the things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So clearly you and I have to have a longer conversation about writing and about money and marriage. I'm here for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the meantime, you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I am very grateful because that supports my work. And I would love yeah. for you to share why you decided to support the show. Oh, I am so happy to support the show. I can't even tell you. It didn't sort of like occur to me until I'd been listening for a few seasons. And um, eventually I'm like, why am I not supporting this? And I just feel like I want this to be around. I love the conversations. I love the people you chat with. I mean, you've had some of like my best friend on the show. (laughs) Um, So I also have a bias there. But um, I just really feel like it right now it's so important to support the people that we follow and we connect with and we love and keep them doing that. So I am happy, happy to do it really lights me up. That's really well said. Thanks. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 